0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. The text that I've been assigned today is 2 Timothy 4, closing out 2 Timothy with verses 9 through 22. And I'm just going to tell you at the outset that this was a challenge for me uh, for just really three reasons. Uh, First of all, because I'm dealing with the text that's the closing words of, of Paul in his letter, not only the closing words of the letter, but the closing words of his life, because history records that Paul was beheaded not long after he wrote this letter. Um, Also, because I'm dealing with a text with a listing of names, which as a preacher, that's not always your favorite text, and yet I'm going to show you in just a moment how important those are to exposit. And uh, thirdly, I only have around 30 minutes, and for such a long-winded pastor as me, That's a challenge too. So here we go, right? (laughs) I'm calling this message uh, Paul's Network of Servants because his listing of names in verses 9 through 22 of 2 Timothy 4, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, and the requests he's making is he writes to Timothy uh, to reveal the people who are part of his network and ministry. He's in his final days of his life, and he's showing us the impact people had upon his own life. And so he reveals in this list the necessity of having a network of people who can encourage and who can share in the ministry of the gospel. And so he lists names of those who comprise that network. He, he lists both friends and those who were actually foes to his work of the gospel. John MacArthur, I'll read this as an introduction, he stated that even uh, he... Paul could not effectively minister alone. He was fully aware of his distinctive calling and authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he did not presume to work for the Lord independent of other believers to try to meet every need and accomplish every task himself. He had teams of fellow workers, fellow servants, fellow preachers, and teachers in whom he placed great trust for mutual ministry, end of quote. So all the people that we're going to look at today were on Paul's minds while he is facing the executioner's acts, and he knows that that is coming. Now, we need to remember this morning that all Scripture is inspired by, by the Spirit of God. All Scripture is useful and necessary for our growth in grace. So remember, considering that, remember that these closing words are not just an afterthought of Paul's like we might do closing a letter to someone. The Holy Spirit included this in the canon of Scripture, and he he did that because we need to know about these people that were in Paul's life. So there are lessons for us to learn from their faithfulness, and as we're going to see, even their failures. So I think the best way to present this to you will be basically to divide the text up into two main categories. And what we're going to look at is Paul's most faithful associates, and then we're going to look at Paul's most unfaithful Associates, And we need to remember, folks, as we read this passage, that Paul's around 60 years old. Now, I'm 61, so he's right my age when he's facing death, and, and he's bound in a Roman prison uh, under the rule of this vicious, insane ruler named Nero. And uh, he's in a state of realization that his life, and, and that also means his faithful ministry, is about to end. And if you look at verse 6, you see this really clear when he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. So you can imagine Paul in this dark, cold prison, and his mind begin to reels, begins to reel, as you can imagine, as ours would do. And note that the thing that he considers as the greatest blessing as he looks back on his converted life is not the many numbers of conversions or even particularly the many churches that Paul was instrumental in planting for Christ. But what he takes note of are the people, the people that God gave him as he ministered for him. He, he ministered, he, he's grateful here to God for all these companions that he has in ministry, his network of servants, as I'm calling it. And that should be a reminder to all of us, by the way, that God has chosen to do the work of bringing his sheep into his fold through who? Other sheep. Forgiven sheep. That's how he does his work. That's how he's going to populate his kingdom, through the work of human vessels. He, he gathers depraved sinners through other depraved sinners. He, he uses the foolishness of the eyes, in the eyes of this world, uh, which is what Paul says the world sees us as. And he says, we use... Paul, God uses the foolish to confound those who think they're wise, and God uses the weak uh, in the eyes of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. So Paul understands that, and, and here we're going to see that he recognizes how vital gospel partners really are when you're doing gospel ministry. So let's look at this passage. First of all, Paul's most faithful associates, and we're going to see this in various verses scattered throughout this text. Uh, The first thing he does is he asks Timothy in verse 9 to come and see him as soon as possible. And this is for the purpose of comforting Paul. He's human. He needs uh, other people around him, and especially in his deplorable condition of this imprisonment in Rome. So he says, be diligent to come to me quickly, because Paul knew his time was short, and he knew that... um, and we we can see by that urgent request his own priorities and so we're gonna find that out as we go through this Uh, and I think this tells us something about Paul's relationship with Timothy too because his very first wish is that younger Timothy whom he trusted that younger Timothy above all others be the one to come and visit him all the way from Ephesus where Timothy was serving in a church that Paul had planted there so he's saying Timothy, come to me as quickly as you possibly can. And just like no church member can actually grow in grace as a lone ranger in their walk with God, also no pastor is a lone ranger, okay? We need one another. Pastors need church members as much as members need him. So the pastor's a part of the church too, folks. He's a member of this church. He's not a separate entity outside of the fellowship as the primary provider of spiritual food when they gather and the pastor's over here and you all are here. And that, that is not good for your pastor if he's ever treated that way. I hope he's not treated that way here, I don't believe he is. But in a lot of churches that's the case. Paul shows that he believes this because he shows that in his, himself as an example. And, and every pastor needs to recognize the same thing in themselves too. Elders of of new heights, remember that you need your church members for your own sanctification because they contribute to it. We don't just contribute to theirs. They should be contributing to ours too. And then in verse 10, Paul recognizes two other servants. Their names are Crescens and Titus. And these men, uh, he says, they left him. They left him. They were in Rome for a while, evidently, with him. And they left him most likely out of necessity because there was a need for leadership in two other churches, one of them in Galatia, one in Dalmatia. So Paul probably didn't send them directly himself, but they went out of necessity, not because they didn't care for Paul particularly or they were trying to leave him in the lurch. They went to do ministry. And then look at verse 11, where Paul says, only Luke is with me. This is interesting. Of course, Luke is a Gentile. He was a very faithful friend to Paul. He was a medical doctor. And Luke was unquestionably uh, one who traveled with Paul because he would tend to Paul's ailments. He had them. After all of his beatings and all the things he went through, he had Luke there to comfort him on, on some of his missionary journeys. And now you got Paul, who's older, and I'm sure that Paul's body showed the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ all over it. Uh, Even though he was around 60, I would imagine his physical body might have even looked older than that because of all the physical things he endured. And Luke uh, is a guy who basically had given up, as far as we know, given up a good medical practice where he could have made a lot of money, just like today, Right? And he gives that up to travel with Paul and accompany him wherever Paul needed him. And and that shows an exceptional commitment to the gospel of Christ on the part of Luke. Um, And so not only was he a a doctor for Paul, Luke was a a co-laborer in the ministry. And, And probably you all also realize that Luke was a great historian if you've read his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and if you've read the book of Acts, which God used Luke to pen so Luke was committed to the Lord's work, particularly committed to the ministry of support. I think he was a, a, such a great supporter. He may not have been the out front type guy, but he was the supporter of Paul. And while the work of Christ required other fellow laborers in the gospel that had to leave Paul, good old Luke, man, he was faithful to Paul, and he stayed right there with him through thick and thin. And then Paul says, get Mark, Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now, this is John Mark. He was—you might remember John Mark in the Book of Acts. He was the nephew of Barnabas, and he had accompanied Paul and Barnabas both on some of the missionary missionary journeys. And he, and here Paul says, Timothy, will you please pick John Mark up on your way from Ephesus to Rome? And you might recall um, Acts 15 records that John Mark, uh, when he was traveling with Paul and Barnabas for a while, um, actually parted ways with Paul and Barnabas. We don't know the details as to why, but evidently uh, something happened that John Mark said. I'm, I'm not going to continue on with you guys. And Barnabas, of course, is his nephew. So Barnabas fought for him, and and Barnabas stood by John Mark. And Paul said, I don't trust John Mark anymore. So that so Paul and Barnabas parted ways over this guy, John Mark. But now we come to the near near the end of Paul's life, and and Paul encourages uh, this young man by asking Timothy, have him sent to because I think Paul felt, obviously from the text, that John Mark can actually be profitable to me here in Rome while I'm still here to do ministry here. So it looks like good things had happened on the part of John Mark. He'd probably repented of his forsaking them or disappointing them in the past, and he's restored now to service again in the ministry. And then we have a guy named Tychicus. And uh, in Ephesians 6, 21, Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. So Tychicus had been sent by Paul to minister in the church at Ephesus, possibly to take Timothy's place while Timothy comes to Rome. Uh, You don't wanna leave the church without someone leading it, and so Tychicus stayed there. That's why Paul didn't ask for him to come to Rome too. They needed him in Ephesus. And Paul then asked Timothy to bring his cloak to him. A kind of an odd yet interesting request here in the middle of all this. Uh, I looked up what this word meant for cloak, and uh, the cloak actually would have been a circular, like if you laid it down on the ground, it was just one big circle. It would have been made of super tough goat skin, and it would have reached down all the way to Paul's feet with only one hole in the head, kind of like a parka, right? It might have even had a hood on it possibly. Um, And it said that that coat would have been so stiff that it could stand up on its own. and Shepherds used to use it in the winter months out in the fields. So this, you can imagine, would be a great comfort to Paul because he's in this cold Roman prison. He's like, hey, while you're on your way, Timothy, bring that coat. I'm freezing in here. And so he, he, Timothy brings him this massive cloak. But Paul also makes a request for his books and parchments, doesn't he? I mean, even while he's imprisoned, Paul wants the copies of Scripture to study. You say, well, why didn't he bring them? Well, probably he was arrested quickly and unexpectedly. He didn't have time to gather a bunch of stuff before he was taken to Rome. And so he says, Timothy, will you bring that and bring parchments? And, and the parchments was probably for his writing that he was still going to write. Even while there, and of course we know he did that in his imprisonments, he wrote letters and we still enjoy them today in the epistles. I read a statement by Kenneth Weiss, he's a Greek scholar, a really good one, and has some great commentaries, and he said this in application to pastors here today, what a rebuke this is, the the parchments and the the, uh, copies that he wanted in the books, what a rebuke this is to those who charged with the responsibility of expounding the Word of God are content with a mere surface understanding not willing to do the exhausting work of research, which only will bring out the inexhaustible riches of the Bible. And what a reprimand this is, he says, to those who have had training in Greek and who've put aside their Greek New Testament. What an exalted privilege it is to be called of God to minister the word. A great privilege and yet a great, an extremely humbling honor. Every pastor knows that To preach the word of God every time you stand up here is a big gulp. We understand the great accountability we have to God that we are expounding the text to you, not our opinion. And that's what I love about New Heights Church. Verse by verse, you're getting what God said, and your pastors are studying the intent of the author to whom they wrote, what that means, and then how it might apply to us. And they're giving you, they're explaining, expositing the text. That's the kind of church you want because that's the kind of church in which you'll grow. And I'm thankful for this church and their commitment to that. Um, Now, the next passage is verses 19 to 21 is another list. So let's just look, read that list. Greet Prisca, that's also Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila, and the house of Onesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Now, because of time, church, and you're probably going to be grateful, I'm not going to address every one of these guys listed here or ladies, but suffice it to say that these people were obviously all a really big encouragement to Paul as they were continuing the work of the gospel in Paul's absence. I want to mention just as an aside here, because I can't pass it up, that one of Paul's dearest co-laborers, Trophimus here, he says was left sick. He left him sick. And my question was, well, why didn't he heal Trophimus too? He'd healed other people, right? Do you think of that? I mean, I think it's important to see something here. And I think it's important to see that the apostolic gifts were already fading away, or certainly Paul would have just healed Trophimus too so he could go on without hindrance in the ministry. Either that or at least that it's obviously not always God's will to heal people, as you hear a whole lot on the airways today, right? On TV and YouTube. Anyway, what a comfort it is to know that the ministry of Christ does not rely on any one person for it to continue on or to survive. I think some pastors want to think it does. rely upon them. Everything hangs on him. It's good for the ego. The fact is, folks, no one's indispensable, all right? Not even Pastor Will's indispensable as he seems to be. No, (laughs) he knows that very well. Folks, this work, as great as it is, this work cannot be resting upon Pastor Will or any of the other pastors and elders of this church or other faithful workers. This church must always rest on Jesus Christ alone, the church is Christ's Christ is the only one called the head and it's through Christ alone that this church and any church will continue to stand and thrive but what I love about the Lord is he chooses to, to use members of the body over which he's head to do his work the works not done without the network of people to do it what an honor and privilege is that that God allows us to actually participate with him in his kingdom work to be a believer and not be participating in his kingdom work is to miss out completely on the God's purpose for saving your soul we're to be busy about his kingdom work but at the same time church even though that doesn't rest on any pastor the church doesn't rest on any pastor at the same times always thank God for the great leadership you do have here always be thankful never take them for granted bless those pastors as much as you possibly can. And you say, how do I do that? I think you bless them most, from from my experience, you bless them most by your faithfulness to Christ and to Christ's church. I always tell our church you cannot love Christ and not love his church, his bride. That's like you telling me that you love me but you don't care for Valerie. Well, you and I have a problem. You can't do that. You can't have that. You can't love me and not my wife. We're a package deal. And so you can't say, Oh, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Then you don't love Jesus. Sorry, you don't. You can't love the groom and despise his bride or not see the purpose for him giving you this great privilege of being in the church. So when you truly love Christ, you love his word and thus you'll love his church where his word is faithfully proclaimed Now, let's look at the other people who were anything but an encouragement to Paul and 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 other faithful believers okay a second list is Paul's most unfaithful associates we have it in verse 10 and 14 and 15 now you might wonder at the outset why did Paul even bother listing these names well there's a there's a time and a place folks to name names in ministry Paul did this frequently whenever there were false teachers that were trying to infiltrate the flocks of Christ, he would name them. And he would warn the churches to avoid them and their false teaching. Because these people were only trying to cause division in Christ's church. And they would do it through false doctrine. I notice that the division in the epistles that Paul addresses is always doctrinal. It's, it's, it's rarely personality differences. It's almost always doctrinal issues that merits church discipline as we go through the epistles. But what a reminder to pastors and elders that we not shy away from calling out false teachers. You see, folks, it's all, it's not only the responsibility of the pastor to feed the flock the truth. It's also his responsibility to call out the liars and their lies. Pastors are to protect their flocks by letting them know when false teaching is out there and what to avoid. And that's a part of ministering as a, an under shepherd. And so Paul names those who forsook him personally and, he resi- and, and these people who resisted the truth that he had been preaching. Demas is the first one there in verse 10. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. So this guy evidently was with Paul for a time because in Colossians 4:14, 4, he, is, he is mentioned by Paul as a guy who seemed to work along with him and with Luke in ministry. But what's interesting here is in the end, Demas ends up abandoning Paul and leaving Paul in the lurch as far as ministry was concerned. Demas, he says, loved this present world. And, and this means that he ended up rejecting the truth of Scripture. For the philosophies or allurements of this world. John warned about these type of folks in 1 John 2, 19. And, and John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's talking about persevering faith. God grants you saving faith at salvation, and he grants you such a, 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 a faith that is of such a quality that it is persevering faith. It always perseveres to the end. But not with these people in 1 John. They went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Listen, folks, there is nothing, and I don't hesitate to say nothing, that pierces the heart of a pastor like this. Seeing somebody profess salvation even come to the church and do churchy things for a while, and then in the end, they forsake it all for this world. Folks, I've seen this many times in ministry, as you can imagine. People profess salvation. Man, they're even discipled, and then they're baptized, and they join the church, and they're faithful for a while. And then when circumstances come that they consider to be not what they signed up for, they leave the faith. I want to ask y'all a question tonight. What would it take for you to leave new heights? What would it take then for you to also leave the faith? Tragedy? Cancer? Situations just come rolling in that you never expected? Pastors weren't there when you needed them? Somebody in the church said this. What's going to take for you to fall into this category? See, the problem is not that God didn't come through for these people in their carnal thinking. The problem is they didn't truly come to Christ. They might've come to Christianity, but they didn't come to Christ because to follow Christ in his own words means denying self, taking up a cross of death as a way of life, even unto physical death to the very end. These people came to Christianity in hopes of finding something that would improve their flight. They didn't put on the parachute of Christ because that would make their flight way too comfortable, that big lumpy thing on their back, right? They just wanted a smooth flight. That's all they came for. So when it wasn't as smooth as they had hoped, what'd they do? They jumped out without a parachute to their death. Paul then warns about another guy tells Timothy, verses 14 and 15, about a guy named Alexander. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. And what we've got here is a guy named Alexander who is probably a metal worker, most likely in the manufacturing of silver shrines and idols to Diana in Ephesus, where Timothy was. So Paul's preaching likely ended up cutting into Alexander's wallet. That's what gospel preaching will do, by the way. It always opposes idolatry. When idolatry is going on, if somebody's preaching the true gospel, idolaters aren't very happy with it. And Alexander decided, man, he was going to resist Paul's preaching even to the point of trying to persecute Paul physically. Because Paul says, he did me much harm. And I was looking that up and that reveals that Alexander didn't only use evil words against Paul, which is bad enough, but he actually committed evil actions of some kind against Paul. And Paul didn't lash back out at him. That says a lot for Paul, doesn't it? Because I would have a tendency to want to do that. Paul's satisfaction is clear here that it laid in the promise of future judgment from God, not from Paul. Paul. And he knew that evil would not always triumph because God is going to recompense each one according to their works at the great white throne judgment. Paul believed it, taught it. And now he lives it out right to his dying breath. So he admonishes Timothy. Timothy, guard yourself, literally, against this guy while you're in Ephesus because he had resisted and opposed their words of gospel truth. And this man was dead set against Christianity. Watch out for him. He's dangerous. How that should remind us of what Christ said in Matthew 16, 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then I want to read the closing words in our text, starting with verse 16. At my first defense, Paul writes, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Now, what that's a reference to is Paul's first defense before Nero's tribunal right there in Rome. Paul was giving his defense against these false accusations that were being brought against him. But I want to explain what this first word, this, this phrase first defense actually means. The first defense would have been the hearing that they would have to establish the charges against Paul. That's the first defense. The second defense would be to determine Paul's guilt or Paul's innocence. And so Paul here is talking about the first one. When I had that first defense, no one was with me to defend me or to vouch for me. He wasn't whining about it. He was just making a statement. He was on his own in that first defense Because look at the next phrase. May it not be charged against them. See? You see Paul's compassionate uh, heart towards the people who chose not to appear with him in his first defense. He's not getting mad at them. He's just stating a fact. In verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. See why he stated it? He wanted us to know this. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. So Paul's greatest comfort, as always, was the presence of the Lord. And and listen, though having fellow laborers with him was no question a great comfort to Paul, nobody could provide what the Spirit of God provided for him. Nobody could give him inner strength that surpassed all human strength. Only the Holy Spirit, whom he had relied on from day one, from his conversion. Also see here that Paul's primary longing for deliverance was not for his release, for his comfort. It was for the furtherance of the gospel. That was always his focus, his aim. Paul desired to present the gospel well, and he would do it by showing courage And by having a peace of heart, even while people are right in front of him, that can take his life from him tomorrow. He wanted to be a good testimony of the power of God. And Paul desired to present the gospel well by this. And that would be a testimony of the reality of saving grace. This is what Christ does when he saves a soul. You see, folks, throughout the centuries since the work of the, the gospel work of the church started, the truth of the gospel has been established. It has been testified by the unwavering courage that is manifested during uh, during the shedding of the blood of the saints of God of the past. Every one of them gave testimony to the saving grace of God in their deaths. And Paul saw his tribunal appearances as just an opportunity to get the gospel to the heads of the Roman state. And you know, if you've read through Acts, Paul took advantage of that every time. He would stand before Felix and preach, right? Just like Peter would do in in the book of Acts. And so uh, here Paul's saying, I'm gonna make sure I do the same thing. This is a huge opportunity for me. But sadly, many people when they're suffering for Christ, they tend to think that that situation that brings their suffering is all about them. How much they're hurting. Rather than, what opportunity can I have here to preach Christ? What persons in my life through this persecution that normally wouldn't be that I could get the gospel to? Oh, that we would have the heart of the Apostle Paul. And we could have. He's not up here in us down here. He's filled with the same spirit that we are. Who is urging us on to do the same things and giving us the power to do so. And then he says, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And I, was, I thought, what is the mouth of the lion here? Well, the lion here is the failing to proclaim Christ regardless of the dire circumstances he found himself in. He saw that as the mouth of the lion, that he would become a coward at the end, that he would be a wimp at the end. He goes, that is the mouth of the lion that God delivered me from. And look what he says in verse 18 that confirms it. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. Now I want you to make sure sure that you understand, first of all, what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying God's going to preserve him from the evil work of the Romans in taking his life because Paul knew that was inevitable. That was about to happen. He's saying the Lord is going to keep him from denying him in any form, even right up to the moment of the axe coming upon his neck. That would have been to Paul the evil work. To fail to proclaim the gospel on this Rare and once-in-a-lifetime occasion or to act fearful or have an improper spirit as the executioner stands above him with the axe. Paul obviously was facing all this with joy. He was facing it with optimism because he says, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Does this sound like somebody that's about to get his head cut off? Yeah, Paul... To him be glory through all of this and through my death forever and ever Paul had no idea I believe just how much glory God would get through his work and his own death the testimony you and I enjoy even to this day but it was also because Paul believed what he wrote in Philippians 1 6 being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ inspired scripture through the pen of Paul Well, Paul then closes the letter, verse 22, and he says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen, or so be it. So Paul prays to Christ here that he would always be the one that had control over Timothy's soul in whatever circumstances Timothy found himself in, which would also end up being persecution. Folks, Christ we know is with all of his sheep all the time. So, Paul's not saying, oh, be with Timothy. And I, I, you listen, folks, I, I don't criticize people's praying very often, but I, I really tire at times of hearing Christians say, oh, Lord, be with so-and-so. I, I, I'm sorry, I do. Jesus is with everybody that's saved all the time. And I, just don't, I think sometimes we just don't know what to pray, so we go, well, be with them, Lord. Well, give him more details. Tell him how, what you want him to do for that person. You know, Uh, so Paul's not doing that. He's not saying, well, the Lord Jesus is not always with your spirit. That's not at all. He desires that Timothy would be experiencing the spirit of God's daily provision of grace that he gives to every single believer in order that they might be faithful to him no matter what they're facing in their life. That's Paul's desire for this man that he loved so much. And may we like Paul, face death one day the same way. Face death, proclaiming his gospel truth, and if we're not able to talk before we die, that we'd be faithful to love him to our very last breath. May that be true of me and you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And folks, listen this morning, if you do not know Christ, may you recognize some important things. First of all, that you have indeed, like all of us, fallen short of God's standard of perfection by breaking his moral commandments. We have all broken them. And that means that we must stand before him one day and be found guilty of breaking them. And when you're guilty, by the way, of a crime, what happens? You have to be sentenced if you're a good judge good judge abides by the law. And he will have to sentence you because he's good and holy and just to eternal punishment in a lake of fire. And if that concerns you at all, that you have broken his law and you'll be guilty before him, my prayer is that God may, by his amazing, powerful grace, grant you repentance and faith in Christ as the one that he sent to pay your fine so that God can be just and still justify guilty sinners. He can set you free from sin's penalty of death. So, New Heights Church, stay faithful to your Lord by being faithful to lead your family to love Christ, by being faithful to your church through a steadfast commitment to it, and to the service and the worship of Christ through your church. So many people today think they don't need the church. Listen, my friend, if you would study the epistles, you're gonna find in there, most of what Paul admonishes us to do can't be done without being a part of a local church. Look for yourself. It is God's ordained plan to use the local body to accomplish his work. And may you be as blessed as Paul that while you're doing it, you have a network of believers surrounding you as you advance the kingdom of Christ on this earth, supporting one another as you go together as a wonderful church body. So I I close with how Paul closed his letter. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.